Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on an overcast day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Giovanna Hartley. Giovanna is Principal Director and Practice Manager at the Thameswood Veterinary Clinics in Swindon, Wiltshire. Giovanna, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Good afternoon, Scott, and thank you for having me here. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, the purpose of this podcast is to essentially gather together a variety of different perspectives on leadership. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you. Right. Uh, It means quite a lot to me, but um, I will try and not be too verbose. I suppose good leadership um, is a fundamental and a very strong belief to try and attain or reach a set of goals um, and even a way of life. Um, But it can only be achieved, and you have to believe that it can only be achieved in a better way with a group of people. Um, That comes from a strong belief that every member of every team has great potential and that every situation that that team goes in has will offer an opportunity to achieve. And how would you describe your own style of leadership? I've been reflecting on that because obviously as a leader, you're not just a leader at work, you're a leader in all walks of your life. And I do a lot of um, quite extreme sports as well as obviously my business and also my personal life. And I suppose my leadership style is really to motivate, to allow my team to see their potential and how they can be developed or how can they develop that. Sometimes I tend to push people a little bit uh, so that they learn to face their fears um, and just gently push them over the edge so that they realize that as long as they have someone behind them and they will be there because I have the confidence that I will only push if they, I know they're going to be safe on the other side. I think that's so, a very interesting approach certainly because do you think it's possible, really, to actually be a good leader or even a good employee without being thrust out of your comfort zone from time to time? Because it can be a real important part of one's development, that, can't it? I think, it, it, you know, people say, oh, I'd love to be in a good and happy team, but a good and happy team isn't going anywhere, really. Um, you have to have a, someone to believe in you and to believe more than you believe in yourself so that you can actually reach your potential, so that you you realize that things that are beating, you know, as, as an employee, you sort of think, oh, yes, well, I, I probably could do that. <laughs> to have somebody then say, you will do it, and we will get you there. And sometimes there's a lot of, you know, screaming and shouting and, you know, I oh, know I can't, no, I can't. But I think that, not literally, obviously, but, I think in the end, they look around and they go, I did it, I did it. And you go, yes, you did it. And I think that allows people to then give more motivation to other people and allows people to to to, to feel confident in themselves. Um, so I think that that is good. 
Mm. I think there's, as you say there, sometimes a little bit of hesitancy isn't there to try new things, especially in the uh, the business environment. And I think that's natu- that's people naturally shielding themselves from failure and from criticism. And that's not, mm. that's not good, is it? Because I think what we should be doing is actually encouraging people to be willing to try things. And if they do make mistakes, to embrace that and be willing to learn from it and use that to improve. Yeah, definitely. I think, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because sometimes it's, it can be annoying, but my mother has still in me such a level of confidence that I can't understand people who who fail because fail is not failing. It's something you've attempted and it's something that perhaps you didn't get right this time. It's something that you can learn from and something that will present opportunities Um and as long as you're not going to fundamentally die as a result of it, 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 it can, other things can be achieved and learned from that. I think that you're absolutely right um, in saying so. Now, um, we talked a little bit about sort of your style of leadership there, Giovanna, but what would you say have been some of the influences behind that style that you've taken on? I've, I mentioned my mother. Um, my mother's a very strong personality and my grandfather. There are countless people within the profession that have inspired me, um, both in leadership but also in management, and there's a clear definition between that. You can be a good leader and you can also be very bad at managing situations or managing people, um, and you can be a good manager and not necessarily be a leader. My, my, say my grandfather, my grandfather had a presence, and I think it's something that I'm not sure whether you're born with it or anything. He could walk into a room and people would turn to him. Um, I think people who are inspirational leaders are people who you find yourself trusting in them for no apparent reason whatsoever and knowing that it's fine to trust them. Mm. So that's how my grandfather used to be. It's a really interesting example there. And um, based upon that, do you think that leaders, like good leaders especially, are born good leaders? Or is that something that you can develop as you go on through your career, do you think? I think I think that leaders will be forced to be leaders whether they want to be or not, because that is what they are born to. Um, and sometimes it, it is incredibly hard I think you as a leader you not only face the fact that you will be responsible for a group of people but ultimately you also have to make the hard decisions and you have to be able to to do them and do them for the good of everybody really so you have an overall overall sort of moral obligation to the whole of the team I think that's an important point because not everybody who ends up in a leadership role certainly envisions that they will do and they do end up having leadership, I suppose, thrust upon them in a way. Um, did, did you always imagine yourself, Giovanna, that you would end up in a leadership position yourself? Um, I have never been in anything but. Um, right from doing sports where you... Um, I'm fairly competitive but prefer to do sports that are not competitive Um, from being in situations that are quite extreme where life is at stake and if people do not take action or take possession of that leadership then then things could go very very badly wrong Um, then I think it's just an automatic thing that you do. 
And for somebody like yourself who um, has, of course, grown up um, in leadership and maintained that very much throughout your life and your career, if you were to give some advice to the younger generations of emerging leaders, what would you tell them? First of all, I think you have to look and you have to look at the people around you. You have to listen to the people around you. And if you're ever lucky enough to be in a position of leadership, you have to learn not to control people, but to 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 enable them to do things and to be able to understand why they do things and give them a one-to-one time. You need to, to spend time with people and make them realize that they are important, both to yourself, to themselves, and to the team. Mm, I think that very close man-to-man, woman-to-woman management. And it's hugely important, that, isn't it? Being able to manage people in that way and understanding human psychology to a degree. Yeah. It's quite difficult. I can understand, and I've never been in a position where I'm in a very large business and, uh, you know, we are one of the only remaining independent veterinary clinics in this whole area. Um, It is very difficult, and I can understand that mentality and the management and leadership if any, is available in a corporate society. So it's a very different kettle fish. I'm only looking at a, a small business um, where, you know, the maximum I've got 40 employees. Um, I do not, I think it changes after that. Mm, for sure. And uh, if we think about um, the future again uh, for a moment, uh, Giovanna, before, of course, we do wrap things up on today's programme, um, do tell me what you envision the next 12 months holds for yourself and for Thameswood Veterinary Clinic and also what you hope to achieve in that time, particularly in navigating this very difficult situation at the moment, which is really putting leadership to the test. And then also looking beyond that through the other side of the pandemic. A very simple question, obviously, Scott. <laughs> um, no, it, it presents fundamentally opportunities. Opportunities to reflect, opportunities to perhaps think of the better values that we have in each other and in ourselves. And it will allow us to connect better with people and to really appreciate what the fundamentals of our jobs are and how important certain areas are and how important our job is generally to the rest of society. And I think that's going to not necessarily be a good thing for a lot of people. Mm, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a time where we realize our own humanity and that it is, and that the minor things in life are really not that important. Um, to go back to a more ethical way of working, which I did have some fears, especially within the veterinary profession with the corporization of the whole of the profession, that perhaps we may have lost our soul. Um, But I think vets are such amazingly good and honest people. um, And I always worried that if they were being led by the people who were not vets, and who were great corporate people that this would be lost. But I think uh, COVID-19 has um, allowed, and with this lockdown, it has made me see that the soul is very much there, that the people we have still, still have the same passion, the same goodness in, in the way they work, that we had 
you know, 30, 35 years ago. And these people are not old enough to have been there. So, it's, you know, the new generation has still got it. So uh, it, it's a wonderful thing to see. I think it certainly is a change in times in that sense, Giovanna, you are right. And um, I think it would actually be really good for the listeners um, who um, are tuning in to this uh, programme, if we could maybe in the next few months, once we start seeing those changes born out, to maybe have you back on the programme to talk about that retrospectively and also catch up on how the um, Thames Vets are doing. Um, but for now, I have to say it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And thanks ever so much, of course, for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. By all means, Scott, thank you very much. And as we say, keep safe. Do keep safe and do stay at home. For anybody listening to this, it does help save lives, absolutely. Um, I was speaking to Giovanna Hartley, Principal Director and Practice Manager at the Thameswood Veterinary Clinics in Swindon, Wiltshire. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Um, Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. In other words, the trade body for firms who provide investment management and financial advice services for individuals and families. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz and that's coming up next. I'm Jonathan White and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in, uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course, it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, But both, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nearly 30 years now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, As PIMFA, it's it's been nearly three years now. And the... uh probably a very wise move because uh, the the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of, um, of businesses which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online, uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's, it's very challenging um, to, um, 
kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you um, because it is quite a complex arena. And that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post-Brexit and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, So it's a whole melting pot of issues that, uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt, I think uh, it, maybe Elizabeth, quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. uh, occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I th- I think it's 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think that the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's, go- it's, just, it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Um, And financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money um the better I think because that then we'll start to promote a culture of of savings and investments which we so badly need in our in 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 our um in our country. Without a doubt Liz, because and again you've hit the nail on the head because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you can, you, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as um, 
uh, for example, uh, with, with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system. But ty time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz, yes, I think you're right. We, we probably <laughs> shouldn't. Um, now, looking at and a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seems as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more, s far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next 12 months? Um, I think... I think that's, that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst, you know, 31st of January came and went, um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period. Um, and for for UK um, savers and, uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still, there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're, we're still, uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied, um, or will be tied to the, um, European rulemaking, um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for, for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know, the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter mm. regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Europe, in Europe, England, or U the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we're, we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posi positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yes, the same piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed, um, absolutely, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. It, absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, if nothing else. 
Um, yeah. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, uh, PIMFA has uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA. Um, are they, at the moment, doing their job correctly? Um, I think part... I th- I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that you know we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or you know the lifeboat funds to pay you know recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays, but. The polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which we... Um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe, FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process. And we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I, I know there's no such thing as a, a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if, let's imagine, let's, let's imagine you did have one, just for, the, just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system and perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might well not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I were, my number one priority to, to solve the system. In terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm. what regulatory yeah, reform, yes. you mean? Um, I think, oh, goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is, gosh, yes, wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected 
and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Now, I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at, um, at the operations of PIMFOR again, it's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with with the departments and the organizations that you do have no i don't i I think it's absolutely fundamental um to any business actually Mm. but it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the values that we have as an organization. We, we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt, and I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it? That that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think, and because of the time here, we we I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask, Liz, looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans Pimfa has for it, nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we 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 have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter um, and what does what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward. But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it, um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just. Um, Kind of is just one of those things. There are a whole host of other of other things promoting the sector as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be uh, a more important year uh, or that has not been in a while that will determine the future of all of those things and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. 
Um, but it's been <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.